Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. Joshua Coleman. Dr. Coleman is the author of the book, Rules of Estrangement, Why Adult Children Cut Ties and How to Heal the Conflict. What do you do if you're a parent and your kid isn't speaking to you? They feel that you've done something wrong. They resent you. They hate you. They're mad at you. How do you reconnect? Dr. Coleman is an expert on this subject. Today, we're going to be picking his brain about techniques from his new book and how they can be applied by parents of teenagers to A, avoid that rift from happening in the first place, but B, what do you do if you find yourself in this kind of a situation and your kid doesn't want to talk to you, doesn't want anything to do with you? We've got some really savvy tips today, and I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Coleman to the show. Thank you so much for appearing here today. This is an interesting area. As you kind of write here in this book, it's not something that you really thought you'd be dealing with um, when you first started your career. So how is it that you kind of found yourself in this unique specialty of helping parents um, kind of reconnect with children who are not talking to them? Well, yeah, I mean, I got interested in the topic, unfortunately, through personal experience. I was married and divorced in my 20s and had a daughter from that um, marriage is in her 30s. I'm, I'm cl- very close to, but there was a period of time in her early 20s where she had cut off contact for several years in some ways, you know, exploring the ways that she had felt very hurt and displaced when I had remarried and had kids from my current marriage and, um, you know, and all of the things that can happen after a divorce and remarriage. And, but going through the estrangement myself was terribly wounding and disorienting uh, experience, kind of terrifying to, to feel like I lost my daughter, who I dearly loved, and that I might never ever see her again. Um, so eventually I was able to kind of find my way back to her and reconnect to her and, you know, we're close again. Um, but at the time, there was nothing really written on the topic. And the guidance that I got, you know, I sought out therapists. And the advice I got was generally terrible and counterproductive. Because people just didn't know anything about it at the time. So it really sort of made matters worse rather than better. Um, so we, so I eventually kind of found my own way back to her and learned a lot in that process. And so I thought, well, you know, so many other people are probably dealing with this. So I wrote my last book, When Parents Hurt compassionate strategies when you and your grown child don't get along about that. And that was 12 years ago. And so as a result of that, I developed a large following of estranged parents uh, or parents who just weren't getting along with their adult children. And so I've learned a lot in the 12 years. I've also done my own research uh, through the University of Wisconsin, a 1,600-person parent, estranged parents survey, and done a lot of reading in economics and history and sociology, just to really understand kind of 
why this happens, why it seems to be happening more frequently and, and those kinds of things. So that's sort of the big, big picture background. Cool. That's really great segue into one of the first things that I found really interesting was, you know, why is this happening? And you talk about it's kind of a theme in the book is that there's been this cultural shift. You say emphasis on loyalty to the family unit has been replaced with the pursuit of individual fulfillment. The belief that one should respect his or her elders has been replaced with the truism that respect isn't given, it's earned. Uh, so, so there's kind of a, mm -hmm. um, a different attitude that young people have towards their parents today or towards just life in general, I guess, that you think is behind this trend. Yeah, I think there's been really starting since the 1960s, there's been much more of an orientation towards, towards the individual. And in many ways, it's been a positive thing. People can leave abusive marriages. People are obligated to stay with parents who were truly abusive uh, and hurtful. Um, you know, there's been much more of an emphasis on not only personal rights, but social rights, civil rights, gay, lesbian, LGBT rights, uh, Black Lives Matter. All these things are very kind of oriented towards individual happiness and fulfillment, which it, which is, is largely a good thing. But as in so many things that are true in history, there's a good news and bad news uh, right. to it. So that's the good news. The bad news is that it's not necessarily a good thing that we don't have a sense of sort of loyalty to people who've given us uh, life, that there's no longer a sense of obligation, that there's no longer a sense of caring as much about elders. So we have a huge crisis of loneliness um, in our culture, uh, particularly for the elderly. Um, so, the, and the emphasis on personal fulfillment is often a very individual pursuit. And the research shows that in cultures where Happiness is pursued in a much more social way, meaning kind of more happiness is pursued more in terms of one's relationships to others, more caring about others, more helping others. People tend to be much more fulfilled and happy in cultures like ours, uh, you know, generally Western societies, but more, more true in the United States than probably any other society because we rank higher on rates of individualism than any other society. Individualism is measured by emphasis on self-fulfillment, happiness, personal growth, personal fulfillment, that kind of thing. Um, that if yeah. emphasis is much more purely on that, then you actually don't have higher rates of happiness. You have more higher rates of anxiety and loneliness and that kind of thing. So what does this have all to do with estrangement? Well, um, on the good, you know, just to summarize on the good side, um, there are people who aren't obligated to stay with, with abusive parents and stay in connection with them. On the bad uh, side, yeah. but on the bad side, the emphasis on personal fulfillment and growth and happiness means that all relationships are basically based on whether or not the relationship makes them happy. And that's a very, so it's much more based on the ties of affection than anything else. And historically, that's new. That's kind of an, uh, that's, that's an expression of, life in post-modernity, um, you know, so um, that where are historically we were involved in relationships much more based on kind of roles and that kind of thing. Now it's much more based on how the relationship makes us feel. And that just makes relationships more fragile. So it's an interesting dilemma. have a lot of great stories in this book of patients that you've worked with and um, uh, really specific 
situations that people are going through. And one thing that was a theme, I think, was seeing parents feeling like, hey, my parent wasn't wasn't a great parent to me, but I still stuck by them. I still did my duties as they got older and, um, you know, never blew up the relationship or said, I don't want to talk to you anymore uh, because that's just not what you do to your parent. But then here I am in the situation now and I feel like I've been a way better parent to my kid than my parent ever was to me. And yet now my kid is not even talking to me anymore. And right. It feels so unfair. And I think... At the heart of that is what you're talking about is this sort of shift in values that this new new generations are not feeling that same sense of sort of guilt or mm-hmm. of the the role, you know, mm-hmm. obligation, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and I think you're, you're, you're summarizing that really well, that a lot of today's parents actually provided their children with a life far richer, not only materially, but much better, <laughs> much better. <laughs> You know, more psychological, more attentive. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, right. And that kind of thing. I was just more uh, so, engaged, totally. Yeah, much more engaged. Um, I didn't didn't use corporal punishment even. Right. Like, we're, we're exactly. Gonna, um, corporal punishment, at least in the United States, um, has been largely taken off the table. It still exists, but far more common in countries like France and, and uh, Italy than it is here. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, right. Parenting has become much more psychological, much more sensitive, much more empathic. So a lot of parents feel like, come on, what, you know, you want to know how to bad child. Stop whining. Can't. Come on. You know how good you got it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Totally. But from the adult child's perspective, and, you know, I mean, um, millennials and Generation Z, the you know, generation younger than millennials, I mean, they, they realistically do have a harder time. They are having a harder time. They have, you know, lower rates mm-hmm. of employment. Uh, they have a lot more reason to be focused on their happiness and fulfillment because life actually is harder for them. You know, you and I were talking before the recording that, you know, you're, you're now living in the uh, part of the San Francisco that I used to live in. And I bet yeah. the rent that I paid when I was there some, you know, I've been in the Bay Area for 40 years. Uh, but yeah. when I moved there, you know, I was probably paying, I think I paid $600 for a full house on 12th Avenue in June. <laughs> Um, you know, and wow. today that would easily be five, six, seven thousand thousand dollars. So, yeah. so you know, so it's just it, it's true that millennials actually have more stress, more strain, more job insecurity, more anxiety about in an uncertain world. So, on the one hand, it's reasonable that they would be very tuned into what is going to make for a happy life. And so, one of the other things that has changed over the past few decades has been an increasingly emphasis on this on the psychological so much more young people many more young people are going to mm-hmm. therapy they're much more introspective they're much more tuned in to the way their parents might have affected them and yeah, you know, on the one hand, very millennial like, yeah well, <laughs> no on the one hand that's a that's a good thing um yeah it's good to be self-aware and to be kind of tuned into the subtle ways that your parents may have affected you the problematic part is that um, I think it's my my field's fault, my field of psychology and psychotherapy, that we've made it too much about parents. In fact, you know, parents are important in a certain way in terms of child outcome, adult outcome, but, you know, more important in many ways is genetics, social class. I mean, I can tell you what kind of a life you're likely going to have purely based on your zip code in terms of how wealthy you're going to be, your level of health. These things are predictive even before parents have children. So the idea yeah. that parents themselves are have so much responsibility for child outcome, it's particularly prejudicial for poor and working class parents. 
So you talk about something that is referred to as the pursuer-distancer dynamic. And uh, it's this feedback loop that happens. And I think um, that, you know, this, we just, teenagers in general uh, and parents are, exhibit this a lot, where the t- as a teenager, you're trying to pull away. Uh, and, you know, especially as you leave the home and mm-hmm. try and create your own life, you're trying to create distance, you're trying to individuate yourself and yeah. distance yourself from your parents mm-hmm. and go out yeah. on your own. Whereas to the parent, that feels hurtful and it feels like you're maybe a rejection at some times and so you then kind of pursue and then that creates this feedback loop so how does that play out in um, your work i think you're raising a really really important point in terms of the teen audience because one of the things that you and i were just talking about was kind of the way that parenting has become much more intensified over the past for decades, parents are much more anxious, but they're also spending much more time with their children. It just used to be- They're working a lot harder at this whole thing than ever before. Today, a career mother spends more time raising her children with her children than a stay-at-home mother did in the 1960s. And the way that they give up that time, yeah. The way they give up that time is not having- to have as much time for social life, life. yeah, much right. sleeping, you know, with friends, with hobbies, etc. And on the one hand, that can be good, and it can be in some ways necessary to produce a child these days, given how little social supports there are for parents or for adults when they those those young children become adults. So the fact that they're going to have to figure out how to pay for college and healthcare and insurance and all these things strains not only the parents, but also the children. So so there's been this enormous intensification of uh, parenting. And on the one hand, that can be really useful because those children are much more likely to do better if they've had this intensive parenting. On the other hand, to your point, it does sort of heat up the home in a way that may make the child feel like they've gotten too much of the parent. So a certain percentage of estrangements that I see is really an attempt at individuation. It's kind of like, okay, I've kind of had enough of you, mom and dad, I've had enough of your involvement, your anxiety, your worry, your guilt, um, your anticipation of the future. The only way I know how to kind of reclaim a sense of self is to really push hard against you. And sometimes that results in, in estrangement. So it's an important thing to be thinking about for parents of teenagers. Here's a little tip to help your teenager get better grades. Researchers at the University of Chicago discovered that students who wrote about their feelings of anxiety and stress before a big exam did better on the test than students who didn't write about their feelings. If your teenager is stressed out, is anxious for a big test, get them talking about their feelings. You could even have them write down what they're feeling. They might just do better on the test. This tip was brought to you by my new tutoring company, zoomtutor.com. It doesn't cost anything to try us out. Your first session is free. Head on over to zoomtutor.com, set up your free session, and let us know you heard about us on the Talking to Teens podcast, and we'll give you a second free session. So kind of the heart of this whole thing is that 
a lot of times the kid feels wronged by the parent or feels like the parent just doesn't get it and that the parent has, you know, been doing something um, that is not allowing the kid to thrive in some way. And as a parent, of course, often you disagree because uh, you have a totally different perspective and you know how hard you've been trying and you look at all the stuff that you have done and say, well, come on, that's crazy. But I like where you uh, go with this, which you even talk about working with schizophrenics when you were at Kettering, Ohio. You're working with paranoid schizophrenics there. And same kind of thing. They, in their mind, feel like the CIA is trying to plant listening devices all over the place and right. the government is after them and all this, uh, all, which, of course, you know, to you sounds a little crazy, maybe. Um, <laughs> but but you point out that y- you can't come at them saying, well, that's crazy or trying to talk them out of it. First, yeah. you have to agree with them and you have to you have to make them feel like you understand them and like you hear them and yeah. so you say you know without a shred of patronizing that sounds terrifying why are they pursuing you how are they doing it what do you think they're trying to achieve and once you can show them that you feel what they're feeling then that puts you in a lot better position to start to ask okay well are there any other possible explanations what are the chances that that's not really what's happening and i think that's just so smart and such a great metaphor for what parents need to do when your kid feels like wronged by you or feels like you, you know, need to make amends somehow. Yeah. Um, starting from a position of, okay, they might be completely wrong. It might be totally all in their head, but you can't come at them and try to convince them of that. First, you need to make them feel like you hear and like you understand. Right. No, no that's exactly right. It isn't really even agreeing. It's just empathizing. It's trying to find the kernel of truth, like let's say your kid says, oh, you're, you know, you're just so controlling all the time. You know, you might want to find the kernel of truth in that before you turn to what, you know, the reality is from your perspective. So you you might say, um, well, I guess I could see how you would experience me as controlling. I mean, it's true. I do have very clear ideas, very strong ideas about what I think you should do or not do. So I could see how that could feel controlling to you. I could see why you wouldn't even like it or hate it. Those are the rules of the household. So I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm going to change them per se. I'm open to hearing your thoughts and feelings about it, but yeah, I could, I could totally get why, why you wouldn't, wouldn't like that. But in the space of a stranger, once a kid is actually caught up contact and so many, you have to do a, a deeper dive. So the reason that I, I included that example when I was working with, um, with schizophrenics was that, yeah, you, you first have to get onto the same page as the other person, whether it's a schizophrenic, it's an estranged adult child or your spouse or that kind of thing. You have to show them that you care about their experience and you can see how they got there. And if you don't see how they got there, for example, some of the estranged parents in my practice, you know, the kid will either from the parent's perspective, rewrite history, or they'll say, well, you emotionally abuse them, that kind of thing. And what I tell parents is to say, well, it, I, I didn't know that you felt that way. It's clear that I have my blind spots, that that behavior caused you to feel emotionally abused. I'm really sorry about that. Hearing how you're describing, I could see how that could have felt that way. Um, and I'm committed to doing better going forward. So you, there just has to be kind of a way to to empathize, to show that you care, to show that you're willing to to change going forward, to get on the same page with your child of, of any age, basically. 
Yep. I mean, the main difference between parenting teens and parenting an estranged adult child is that with teens, you actually do have some, assuming you're not divorced and, you know, you only have them part-time um, and they right. can blow up the relationship by saying, I'm just going to go to moms or dads. But uh, with teens, you actually do have data to set limits and that kind of thing. talk about a dynamic called parental alienation Mm -hmm. then you talk about there's five different categories of it um so what do we need to know about parental alienation (laughs) yeah it's a it's a very serious problem parental alienation typically happens after a divorce um and it's when one parent consciously or unconsciously really poisons the child against the other parent and it can happen with parents who have grown children as well. A lot of parents feel like, well, I'll, I'll wait until my kids are in college and then I'll divorce, you know, their mom or their dad. And I've been a good parent. They know that and everything will be fine. But it doesn't always work out that way. So if, if one parent is really motivated to poison the child's heart and mind against the other parent, uh, it's far easier to do than one would think. And it's not only terrible for that parent who's being you know, basically being rejected by their own child, which is a nightmarish thing for the parent. But it's also bad for the child. It has long-term negative implications uh, for the child. Uh, So it's really something that there has to be increased social awareness about. I think it shows up so much in divorce and on both sides, especially um, you've got, you talk about kind of the Disneyland parent Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, w- when you have less custody, then it's you want to become the fun parent and you only have your kids for a few days out of the month. So um, let's all have dessert. Let's stay up late. Let's watch R-rated movies. That's all good. And mm-hmm. kind of putting down the other parent as a stick in the mud who's so um, always stressing out about stuff uh, because you, you want to have that bond with your kid. And it's easy to kind of fall into that, I think. And you're pissed off maybe spouse as well um and so it's easy to let that slip into kind of your language and stuff but in both directions too or if you're the parent who has more custody um you know you're in more of a powerful position there too and so it's easy to frame the other one as kind of um clueless or aloof or not mm-hmm. having it together or anything like that and right or to actively restrict the, the visitation or interfere with therapy and yeah there's a lot of power that the custodial parent has in terms of blocking um, contact with the other parent or vilifying them or that kind of thing. So is that, I mean, what do you do if you find yourself on the, on the receiving end of that and you realize your kids are kind of parroting back to you things that are clearly things that they were told or that they're being brainwashed by the other parent kind of against you or turned Mm -hmm. against you? Yeah, no, it's an important question. I mean, the main thing is don't, you know, just because one parent's the other parent's throwing you under the bus, don't throw that parent. <laughs> your, right. kid, your kids need one same parent, and you're not going to mm. you're not going to get their affection or their trust by blaming the other parent by you know even by you know you shouldn't call them a liar. Well, your dad's a liar. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's terrible for children. No, you have to stay grounded and affectionate. And if you hear something again, you kind of have to. 
it's sort of like with a pair of schizophrenics, you still have to to get on their same page. So like if yeah. you know, your kid is saying something like that, you know, is kind of coached by the other parent that says something like, well, you know, you were always so critical of us and you know that you weren't a particularly critical parent. You can't just say, no, I wasn't. Or you can't just right. say, you know, that's coming from your mom because that's what she always said. Or, you know, she felt like I was too critical of her. You have to say, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that you felt like that. What, what are some examples of that? Um, one of the signs of, of alienation is that the, they either can't come up with the examples, but the examples are so kind of nonsensical or so thin that if they're inquired into at all, they kind of crumble in your hand. So you want to kind of teach your kids to be investigative of these accusations, but you do that through mm. empathy and interest and kind of go, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that you felt like I was so critical. What are some examples? And you're not saying what are some examples so you can prove them wrong. Right. You just really yeah, yeah, yeah. encourage them to, you're showing them that you're open to, you know, self-examination and to hearing their perspective. It's just a different way to show your affection and commitment. So, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize you felt so criticized. What's well, that's terrible. I'm really sorry. I never want to make that. you feel that way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Next, next time I do, I do that. I definitely want you to, to tell me. So again, you, you hold on to your parental affectionate position without throwing the other parent under the bus because a brainwashed child believes they still believe it, right? The fact that they don't know that they're brainwashed and you right. can't tell it. You can't tell a child that they're brainwashed. So you have to kind of yeah, enter. Especially a teenager. Them. Yeah, wow. That's <laughs> not going to go over well. <laughs> right, because with a teenager, then it's tied into their needs to individuate, you know, develop their own feelings of authority and power and control. So it's a whole nother ball of wax. We're here with Dr. Joshua Coleman talking about how to heal a broken bond with your kids. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. You know, as our children or adolescents, we have to shift from being managers to being consultants. You're not obligated to say, yes, I was always so critical of controlling. You just got to control that clearly I was much more controlling than I realized. Or I can see how the ways that I was controlling was really hurtful or destructive to you. Parents often worry that, well, I don't want to validate it. It's just going to make them believe it even more strongly. Right. The opposite is true. These things were paradoxically. The more you acknowledge it and take responsibility, the more your kid feels understood, the more they can let down their defense and let you in. Well, the research on, on this is uh, that getting much more into the specificity of each emotion actually allows you to become more, more free of it. It has to do with research on mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy, this principle that if you go toward an emotion and face it and accept it and don't try to fight against it, you're much more likely to have the effects of it pass much more quickly than if you struggle with it, if you deny it, if you fight it. So getting into the granularity is kind of a good way to do that. It's a way to sit with the emotion and really sort of feel the shape and weight of it. Because the more we can really understand what we're feeling at a really kind of microcosmic level, the better ability we are to, to let it go if it's, a, if it's a troubling feeling. So, you know, if I just say, oh, I'm sad, you know, that's, that is an accurate statement of how I'm feeling. But if I say, actually, I'm grief stricken, or maybe it's not even sad as I get into it, maybe it's more that I'm just fearful, you know, or I'm catastrophizing or those kinds of things. But getting into the granularity, the specificity of the emotion learning how to accept our feelings, to uh, radically accept things that we can't change, 
those are all very critical principles for, you know, for serenity and happiness and the like. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.